Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Well, hello. We are going to spend this show talking to Martin Amos. That's one of his favorite recordings. We thought we would pick some of his favorite recordings to go in and out of segments with because we aim to create a sense of comfort. Um, before I say much more about our guest today, I do have to quickly uh, tell you that today is one of the days, there are usually two of them in a month, uh, one of the days when we do what we call Radio for the Deaf, which is uh, our attempt to provide a version of our radio program to the deaf audience. What that means is I have two wonderful interpreters uh, in the studio with me. They are interpreters uh, of American Sign Language. They are sitting in front of cameras. Those cameras will connect their work to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. Uh, So that's where you would go. On Facebook, you would go to the Colin McEnroe Show and you would see the video right there. And obviously, if you can hear me saying this, you're not the person who probably needs or wants this, but if you could communicate that to anybody you know who is deaf and who might enjoy something like this, yes, that is our goal. So it's there live, and it'll be uh, stored there, too. You'll be able to watch it subsequently. Um, so anyway, I, I'm not going to belabor that, but uh, be aware anyway that we're doing that. All right, so Martin Amos is the author of 14 novels, two short story collections, eight works of nonfiction. His latest is uh, a fascinating compendium called The Rub of Time, Bellow, Nabokov, Hitchens, Travolta, Trump. Probably five names that are not ordinarily strung together. Uh, Essays and Reportage, 1994 to 2017. And he's with us by phone right now. Uh, Good afternoon, Martin Amos. Good afternoon. Um, I want to start with... I want to start with two things that are of great interest to you, the rise of Donald Trump uh, and the rise uh, of the Nazis uh, in Germany and the subsequent Holocaust. Um, One of the comparisons that you've made is the day after the U.S. election, uh, comparing it to Germany after Hitler's appointment as the German chancellor in 1933, citing the historian Sebastian Hafner. Uh, He said the feeling was not of horror. It was of complete unreality. You go out into the street and people look different. The commerce, the cars, it all looks staged for your benefit completely make-believe, a sick-making feeling, and here it is, and what the F did they expect? Um, I've had that feeling not just the day after the election, but I I find these days, even now, that there's sort of a weird cognitive frame-shifting that goes on, that I'm uh, I'm having a different experience of reality than I I had in, say, you know, 2015. Uh, I, can you talk a little bit about that? What do you think? What, what is it that you are describing that that sense that that Hoffner describes and that you describe post-election? Well, uh, the feeling of surely there must be some mistake, uh, <laughs> and it's it's undiminished even now after what is it, 15 months, 14 months. Um, just every time I hear the the clinch President Trump, I I think there must be some mistake. Um, 
that, that in fact the mistake is a category mistake and uh, he doesn't belong in this world of real politique. He, uh, he's a you know, reality TV star. When he said, when he said I could shoot someone down on Fifth Avenue without losing any votes, he you know, blunderingly put his finger on something that I think is true, that, that his supporters, his base um, in particular, think that he's not really of their world, that he belongs to um, the pseudo-reality of, of you know, TV shows. So he is, that's his immunity to a series of scandals that would have unseated every president from George Washington on. Um, the, the people are, are touching wood when they hear him because he's not, he's not convincingly real. Well, I think also because he is a creature of reality television and because he's translated that vocabulary uh, into the running of a nation, I mean, what uh, I haven't watched a lot of reality television, but I've watched enough to know that it has one signature trope that repeats and repeats, whether you're watching Survivor or The Bachelor or American Idol or The Apprentice or any of the shows. At the end of the show, you get rid of somebody. Somebody gets kicked off. Somebody gets kicked out uh, in the final minutes of each episode. And, and I think yeah. now, you know, people look at the White House and they say, oh, he's lost 50 staffers in his first year. His cabinet is going through this chaotic overhaul. Well, that's very much a narrative that he's comfortable <laughs> and, and a purveyor of, right? Yes, um, it overlaps with that. Um, and and, and he's, he's relying on, on that numbness of on reality. I mean, when I say he's relying on it, I, I wouldn't attribute to him any, any two consecutive thoughts. I think he, he thinks he's so marvelous that he can just wing it. And, and it's been like that from day one. Um, I mean, it's interesting that, um, that the Hitler comparison comes up and it doesn't come up very often and nor should it. I mean, he, he has two traits that are, that uh, um, that he shares with Hitler, and they're, they're minor details, really. One is uh, his revulsion at, at, at smoking and drinking, um, though he's not a vegetarian as Hitler was. Uh, and the other is obsessive cleanliness, um, uh, what we would now call compulsive obsessive disorder, um, and he's admitted to that, so it must be quite extreme, I think. But what he doesn't share with Hitler, and this is the crucial thing, is any great will to power. Um, he didn't want this job. He, he announced his presidency to up the rates on his brand. Um, and I think when in his sober moments, evanescent as they are, he realizes that he's... Um, He's in the wrong category, um, and he he doesn't know what to do with his power, um, and he he has always played it, you know, winging a prayer, and um, and so it will continue. But I, I think the another difference, or another, excuse me, another similarity um, is. 
this this is going to be a somewhat long question, so bear with me. But um, there's a way in which the frame of reality has shifted in a really dramatic way. I'll give you an example. I, you know, in in twenty say twenty fourteen, I had certain problems with President Obama. I had some interesting questions about him, interesting to me anyway. Um, I mean, for example, that he could be a constitutional scholar and still be presiding over a nation that had Guantanamo and had extrajudicial executions taking place. Those seem like incredibly petty acts of caviling now in, in the current climate. Almost anything I've ever objected to in a politician seems like a, a, an incredibly petty act of caviling compared to the present moment. And I think, I, you know, I've been spending some time uh, with um, your novel, The Zone of Interest, which takes place in and around a concentration camp. And you, you enter the mind of this commandant who has just started thinking about the world in a very, very different way, a way that is unfamiliar to most of us. And so if there's another comparison that I feel Martin Amos invites me to think about. It's kind of that one that you get in these situations and you start thinking about the world in a way that you've never thought about it before and discarding old ideas that were rock solid to you a few years ago. Um, yes. Well, it, it's, uh, that's the, the great uh, liberty and adventure of fiction is that you do enter into the mind of uh, – people who are utterly alien to you. And um, it was quite alarming. It was, I, um, I was helped in that project by having read the memoir of the commandant of Auschwitz, uh, Rudolf Hurst. Mm -hmm. um, and his memoir um, is almost like a, a wonderful novel by someone like Nabokov. Um, where it's not so much an unreliable narrator as a completely transparent narrator, and one who has gathered up this ideology, and um, that's what's powering him through. So I, I immersed myself in that book and began to try and think and feel like the commandant of Auschwitz. And I would sometimes plumb my mind for, for quote-unquote, improvements in cruelty and uh, uh, unscrupulousness and stupidity. And I, I found that lurking in my mind were uh, greater extremes of horror than the ones presented to me. And uh, you can do this at some risk to yourself. But it's, you know, the great thing about fiction is that it's like looking at a tiger in a zoo, in that, that you've got these very reassuring steel bars between you and the creature. <laughs> um, but um, it, this is a, you know, it's, I would like to write about Trump in such a way, mm -hmm. but it's, it's absolutely much too early. You can't write satire about something that's still going on. It's a, it's a hostage to fortune. And famous examples of satire, like Swift's a modest proposal about the famine in Ireland, mm -hmm. uh, that was written when the famine was, uh, had been successfully relieved. 
And Dickens writing about imprisonment for debt, which he did very fiercely in Little Dorrit. Um, when that book appeared, uh, imprisonment for debt had been abolished. Uh, you can only do it when it's over. Mm. Um, so I, if I do live long enough to write about Trump, depending on how long he lasts, um, it would take three or four years after he's over before I would dare put pen to paper. Right. And I think oh, instead what you've done is write uh, quite a bit of nonfiction about Trump and his followers. And, and I think, you know, the other act of imagination is to imagine the mind of the follower or try to understand the mind of the follower. Now, the person who, who sees what we see uh, and says, yes, that's, we're making some progress with this man. We're going in a good direction with this man. And this man conforms to my idea of what the leader of a great nation is. And, and there are people, you know, millions of them apparently, who, who have these thoughts. You went to one of the rallies, as did I. Uh, you invoked the Clive James Barry Manilow principle, which is that everybody that you know doesn't like Barry Manilow and everybody that you don't know does like Barry Manilow. Um, I, so these, this is another alien group for you. What did you learn from spending time at that rally and with them? Well, my uh, hesitant conclusion was that um, what they love about him, and they do love him, and as I'm sure you saw, mm -hmm. um, it's a sort of celebration of, um, I think, a celebration of stupidity. And uh, Trump is in the marvelous position of saying to them in square brackets or in a whisper, um, you know, you're, you're the left behind, you're the... You know, the, those people who can't live in this accelerated world that we all occupy. Uh, you're not lifelong autodidacts. You haven't got degrees. Um, but and people call you stupid um, and the elite sneer at you. But look at me. Um, I'm stupid. I don't know anything. Um, and I'm the leader of the free world and a billionaire to boot. Um, and this is, you know, a tr tremendous affirmation for those who are left behind when they think, I actually, I don't have to change. Um, I don't have to take a night course in computer science. I can just uh, go on in my, you know, blinkered way. And um, with luck, uh, fortune will smile on me. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a very simple um, transaction between Trump and his base. And let's not forget for a moment how allied to racism it is and um, how it's a result of Obama, through no fault of Obama's own, uh, except the color of his skin. Um, you know, that it was, a, I think, a baseline for, 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 for Trump's core followers, but it's also for every white American. This idea that you're, you know, you're looking out of your trailer where you live or your uh, cracker hut, and, um, and you, you're saying to yourself, you know, I may not, you, you have another opioid, and you say to yourself, I may not be much, but I'm better than any black man in, in this country. And when Obama appeared, that had to be revised. 
um, at least subconsciously, and and it stored up a great deal of uh, of racism that um, that poured forth uh, in November 2016. Um, you moved here, by the way. I'm sure Cracker Hut is uh, going to be an exciting chain of new restaurants. But um, you moved here in 2011 partly to escape. I think you said at the time the moral decrepitude uh, of Britain at that moment, and it seemed as though uh, America, in response to that upped its game in the moral decrepitude um, department. Do, do you still see well, this? I, I, I never said moral decrepitude. Oh, okay. I would never say that of England. Um, but there is a sort of paralysis in England. Um, but if you're, um, as I'm sure you're going to do, it's irresistible. If you're going to say that um, Brexit was the equivalent of our Trump, mm-hmm. uh, America's Trump, um, it's not it's not quite as heinous because no one knew what Brexit was going to look like. Mm-hmm. No one had any idea what Brexit would be. It was a leap in the dark. And um, uh, if, if Britain had known that Brexit had uh, orange skin and yellow hair and couldn't complete a six-word sentence without repeating or, or without a tautology, um, I don't think they'd have voted for him. But Americans got a very good long look at Trump. Um, he was in our faces for a year and a half before he was elected. And instead of wanting less, they wanted more. Um, so a, a very different kind of leap in the dark in that it wasn't dark. Right. I, I wasn't going to uh, equate Brexit with Trump. I, I was going to do rather the opposite and ask you whether you're tempted to move back to England now. I mean, I don't have any place else to go, really. Uh, y- you could go back there and be free of all this. Well, yes, but I, um, oh no, I want to be here even more now that <laughs> Trump is uh, at the helm. Uh, I don't want to cower away from this. I want to see what it's like. Um, and uh, uh, to go back to a Britain that is now excluded itself from Europe is is not at all attractive anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know what brought me here was an urge to be close to the centre of the world, uh, which is still America's position. You know, there's two people who come up in this book, uh, I'm talking about the rub of time now, who always strike me as, they're sort of my go-to people when um, the world goes sideways or dramatically backwards. At a, at a time like 9-11 or the election of Donald Trump, uh, I'm very interested in what Don DeLillo has said to me so far um, and also very interested in what Robert J. Lifton, who's a very has a very different profession, has had to say about this kind of thing. I often turn to them at times like this. So I discover in this book, I mean, I'm not surprised to see you writing a long review about of DeLillo and we'll come to that. But the you know Robert J. Lifton, who is this uh, sort of psycho uh, psychological analyst of uh, of totalitarian and 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 extreme movements. You've been hanging around with him on Cape Cod, which strikes me as very interesting. And he's one of the leaders right now uh, of the group that is making the argument that, from a purely uh, psychiatric point of view, we have a 
president who is mentally unbalanced, right? Robert J. Lifton's one of the leaders of that argument. What do you make of that? Well, I, I think the, um, that's putting it mildly. Um, he's, uh, he, I mean, intellectually non-existent and um, and has no protection from the corruptions of power, which he barely understands. But um, but power works on you whether you know what to do with it or not. Uh, I. Paul Krugman said quite a long time ago that um, that Trump is is displaying the symptoms of um, a premature or not very premature um, dementia, um, and his speech patterns um, very much fit the profile of, of Alzheimer's or something like that, um, one variant of dementia or another. Um, so uh, we can look forward very warmly to his second term, uh, which when it ends, he'll be, what, 76, 77, uh, 78. 78, I would think, um, yeah. And the, his condition will be fulminant by then, uh, much more advanced. Um, we're talking to Martin Amos right now. His new collection is The Rub of Time, Bello, Nabokov, Hitchens, Travolta, Trump, Essays and Reportage, 1994 to 2017. We'll take a very quick break here and we will be back with more. Back, we are back, and with us uh, is Martin Amos. Uh, he has a new collection of nonfiction writings out. Uh, we just spent the first segment of the show talking about Donald Trump. I promise to you that we will not talk about Donald Trump for the entire show. But there's an interesting little bridge to the present moment. Uh, Martin Amos, one of your uh, journalistic pieces here is a, a foray into the world of pornography uh, and the people who make and perform in pornography. Uh, I'll read out a, a one quick quote because I liked it so much. Porno stars, despite being very bad at acting, are very good at acting in one particular. They can keep a straight face. But then humorlessness, universal and institutionalized humorlessness, is the lifeblood of porno. So you're today, on this day in history, in a unique position, having uh, made that particular journey into that particular underworld. Um, right now, as you and I are speaking, uh, the aforementioned, aforementioned President Trump uh, is going through a drama involving a person known as Stormy Daniels. Let me see if I can get the twist and turn right for today. I believe today the argument is that he or his uh, lawyers are seeking a restraining order against her so she can't talk about the fact that she was paid to be silent and she is in, in uh, is making the claim that they never fully honored that agreement. So here, here we have Donald Trump, one of your fascinations, uh, and a well, porno star uh, who um, who claims some real familiarity with him. I don't know. Well, what what perspective can you give us on all this? Well, um, for a start, um, I think I can assure you I can stick up for the president and say that he ne never had sexual intercourse. 
and particularly not unprotected sexual intercourse with Stormy Daniels. Um, you know, to return to his um, obsessive cleanliness, um, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, and this is the man who said that every vagina is a potential time bomb, or um, yeah, that's right, and um, he couldn't possibly have had sex, even protected sex with Stormy Daniels, because as as the the, the very intelligent and uh, perceptive porn star I spent a lot of time with, Chloe, told me that she said, almost the first thing she said to me was, I have herpes. Um, everyone who works in this industry has herpes. Um, so the really fascinating prospect is that we'll find out, you know, he, he must have done $130,000 worth of something with her. <laughs> but... Um, and uh, I wonder what it is. I mean, it, and it could be absolutely anything, like uh, uh, like her, him throwing cream buns at her. And she says she has some sort of visual evidence of whatever it was they got up to. And um, it, it's it's going to be whatever it is. It's going to be much more embarrassing than than coition. Um, it's we're going to see. We're going to get get a glimpse of the polymorphous perverse in the person of Donald Trump, and and there's no knowing what that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, this collection of uh, writings takes us very close to the present moment, but probably not close so close that we get into kind of the other side of that conversation, which is this the Me Too. Time's Up movement that we're going through right now. You've written so much about uh, the relationships between men and women uh, in your fiction and in your nonfiction. What are you seeing in this present moment? Well, uh, we, we still we still haven't left the subject of Donald Trump. No, no, we have not. I, I remember when when the Harvey Weinstein thing broke and picked up this enormous momentum from. Uh, you know, considering that um, what Roman Polanski had done, drugging a 13-year-old and sodomizing her, and what um, uh, what others had done, drugging women and uh, sleeping with them when they're half-conscious, um, no one's accused Harvey Weinstein of that, although there is now this rape uh, accusation, but um, why did it take off with him when when the other staff had had um, had was drifting into the past? And suddenly, this great burst of energy from from women, and it, I talked about it with my wife and others, and we agreed that it's it's Trump. It was how many months after Trump's inauguration that this broke or uh, with all those accusations swirling around Trump and it was it was that I think well, together with a bit of bad conscience about you know, the women who voted for Trump mm-hmm. uh, 53% of white college educated women voted for Trump and I think since women are already in the forefront of those who are suffering under Trump 
with reproductive rights in question and withdrawal of all the, you know, the gag order that deprives women all over the world of contraception and other services. Um, you know, women are dying because of Trump. And uh, I think that's an element in, in this uh, little revolution in consciousness that we're seeing now. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here, although I think we seem to uh, work our way back to the big orange elephant in the room no matter what we talk about. But um, you've always written a lot uh, about words, about uh, uh, your interest in the way language is used, uh, much in the manner that that Orwell uh, was interested in the way that language was used. So in this book, you introduce us to uh, a term that I had not known. It, it is a verb to OJ or to be OJ'd, uh, which you actually say you think is, it maybe is a good verb, but explain to the audience what that word means or that phrase. Um, well, it was, it was um, a common occurrence in certainly in California, but all over America, um, where writers would be OJ'd just as they were about to do an interview. And I asked my uh, escort to use the, the verb OJ in a, in a sentence. She said, uh, Norman, Norman Mailer was going to do uh, national television, but then he was OJ'd off of it. That, that means that when there's a, a fresh bit of news about the Simpson trial, that, um, that the schedules would be completely rewritten to accommodate it. Um, Rather uh, a welcome coinage, but um, of course it, it it's no longer in use. Although it it is a it's a useful word in the sense that we now live as somebody who prepares or attempts to prepare to do a daily radio show. I'm conscious that we are being OJ'd all the time these days, just not by OJ, but by th- these zigs and zags. I mean, we're back to the president now, but these zigs and zags that are so sharp uh, on many days that all of reality in the news has to adjust to them in almost exactly that way, right? Yeah, you you get trumped. Right. Um, yes, he's he's uh, taken over from OJ as as uh, someone who's who's likely to rewrite schedules. Yes. <laughs> Although I I mean, trumped now can mean so many different things. Maybe we should just keep it with OJ and let him uh, own that particular phenomenon. Um, you know, Orwell, of course, wrote about politics in the English language. Um, uh, I'll read the introduction just for people or the first few words just to, to remind the listeners. Most people who bother with the matter at all would admit that the English language is in a bad way, but it is generally assumed that we cannot by conscious action do anything about it. Our civilization is decadent in our language, so the argument runs, must inevitably share in the general collapse. It follows that any struggle against the abuse of language is a sentimental archaism, like preferring candles to electric light or handsome cabs to aeroplanes. Underneath this lies the half-conscious belief that language is a natural growth and not an instrument which we shape for our own purposes. You know, we've 
lived Martin Amos through a period where language, again, seems to be twisted around in, in ways that Orwell would both recognize and not recognize. For example, the president described people who were not clapping for his State of the Union address. He said, un-American, somebody said treasonous. I mean, yes, I guess, why not? Can we call that treason? Why not? I mean, they certainly didn't seem to love our country very much. But you look at that, at that and it's really very sad. Um, as somebody who monitors the language, uh, um, are there particular things that you're noticing right now that are happening to the English language? Well, Trump is a sort of bull in a china shop when it comes to language. And I was very startled the first time he used fake news as a sort of catch-all for anything that wasn't pro-Trump. Um, and I thought, hang, hang on, fake news doesn't mean a dissenting opinion. It means, um, you know, stories like uh, Hillary Clinton running a, um, a pedophile ring out of a pizza parlor. Um, that's fake news. Uh, Trump uses it to, to fend off any accusation, whatever. Um, so I thought, you know, God, that didn't take long. You know, just in 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 an afternoon, the meaning of fake news was commandeered by him in a in a completely unexpected and illegitimate way. So I I think you know Orwell was brilliant about this, but um, language has stood up. Um, usage does is self-correcting uh, with. You take various deficits along the way, but um, but but it's still there as as the central instrument, and we won't know for a while whether um, Trump has done it permanent damage or is just trying to do it permanent damage. Uh, and I think it's not just him. I mean, I, I think that we, in our rush to describe things, uh, very quickly embrace. Uh, words. I, I mean, we in the news media, in particular, uh, you know, will go through a period where w we have, let's say, a chaos narrative, and this is the narrative about how there's chaos in the White House, and and the word chaos will get used on the air, you know, 500 times uh, every day, um, and there are some consequences to that, including when things get worse, it's hard to know where you go from there. If you want to describe something worse than chaos. Uh, what you know? What word do you find? <laughs> um, well, you have to get out your thesaurus and and go looking for it. it it's true that um, that there is a desensitizing effect of of you know turning up the dial too soon, but um, it certainly looks like chaos to me. And uh, you know, it was Jeb Bush who first described him as a a chaos candidate who's going to be, a, you know, if elected, would be a chaos president. Uh, so it, 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 it's been with us since well before the election. Um, we're talking to Martin Amos right now. The book, uh, the new collection, is The Rub of Time, Below Nabokov, Hitchens, Travolta, Trump, Essays and Reportage, 1994 to 2017. We have time for uh, a little break here, and then we will have one nice long stretch of time to talk some more to Martin Amos. So please stay with us. This is a man's world. This is a man's world. 
Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, with help from Betsy Kaplan, Tucker Ives, and our friends at Source Interpreting. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Travolta. On tomorrow's show, our pop culture roundtable, The Nose. And now, back to Colin. All right, and we are talking to Martin Amos. His new collection uh, is out. Um, what we're going to do in the spirit of the collection, I think, or of any collection, is uh, hunt and peck around a little bit here uh, down the home stretch. And I promise you, uh, we will explain uh, what uh, John Travolta's name is doing uh, in that title among those other luminaries. But before we get to that, Martin Amos, one of the things that uh, is done in this collection is occasionally we have these interludes where uh, readers. Uh, of a newspaper in Britain are allowed to send in questions, both respectful and cheeky, uh, to you uh, for you to answer, and you often answer them uh, in equally cheeky ways. Um, is this something you enjoy doing? What, what's up with the questions and the answers? Um, they sent me a, a raft of questions, and I chose the ones I wanted to answer. And some of them were cheeky, um, and some were less serious than others. Um, and uh, it, it took me, a, you know, I did make a distinction in the piece about Christopher Hitchens about spontaneous eloquence. And um, Nabokov said, I think like a genius, I write like a distinguished man of letters, I, I talk like a, a child. Um, and I was saying how exceptional Christopher was in that he, he spoke in not only in complete sentences, but in complete paragraphs. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't have included a, a, a verbal, an oral uh, interview, but since I did write my replies and they wrote their questions, um, I felt it was, uh, I felt willing to include those, those two sections. Did, did you do you enjoy those kinds of exchanges? I mean, I'm trying to imagine Updike, uh, prolific though he was, doing something like that where people could write in and maybe even snark at him a little bit and while he wrote back. Was it, did, did you, I don't know, did you uh, rise to the, to, the, to the battle here a little bit? Not really. I mean, it, it's part of the enjoyment of, um, you know, uh, public appearances and, Q and A's and all that is is that the writer's life is is all solitude and it's all aspiration and anxiety, uh, but it's it's solitary, mm-hmm. and um, I I like meeting. Never mind about meet the author. I like meeting the reader, mm-hmm. and uh, it's nice to know that you're making some sort of connection with the outside world, because you wouldn't really know it from what you do all day. So it's, there's something sociable about it. Um, and I'm more and more convinced that the novel itself is a social form, the, the right position of being the host and the, and the readers in the position of being the guest. And those two words, as John DeLillo has reminded us, 
have the same root. Mm. Um, there's, some, there's a strange identity between reading and writing, and it's nice to to put a to have a face to address things to or or a name, and not not this uh, eternal groping, which is what writing really is. <laughs> um, speaking of DeLillo, you, you and I admire him, and we I seem to like and dislike uh, the same uh, groups uh, of novels. I, I somebody gave me the the names in manuscript form, and because they knew I loved DeLillo, and I struggled to get through it, I, it was almost unreadable to me. But I did feel, particularly at the time of nine eleven, that almost that many of the DeLillo novels that I had read up to that point. Players, Running Dog, White Noise, probably a few others existed, well, Underworld, underworld existed in my mind to prepare me for something that I, I couldn't have known was going to happen, a kind of tragedy, a kind of world-inverting uh, tra- tragedy that I just uh, I didn't have a lot of equipment for. But he did, I feel like. I feel like in writing those novels, he, he could somehow or other see what it would be like uh, if, if the world turned upside down. And I, and I think you talk about him as sort of a, a supreme author of a certain kind of actual real-world terror. Maybe you can say a, a bit more about that. Well, I think uh, prescience or you know, predicting the future is is not a, a a genuine literary pursuit um, th- there's something in the nature of world events that makes them uh, utterly unpredictable as philip roth said uh, they're the, the remorseless unforeseen and there's something essentially in these events that that makes them turn out not as you expected but but um and anyway, you know, reading a crystal ball is not a sort of respectable uh, literary pursuit. But there are certain writers, and DeLillo is one, J.G. Ballard is another, where you feel they, they have these supersensitive antennae that do receive transmissions from the, from the near future. And, uh, I mean, there's an extraordinary bit in, I think it's players, where he imagines the World Trade Center, this is in the 80s, I think, as as nothing more than a, a, an illusion, mm-hmm. two beams of light that go up into the heavens. And, and um, that is, in fact, what the World Trade Center became mm-hmm. after, after September the 11th. Uh, they became a light show. And that's very striking, I think. Um, it's a sort of serendipity, but it's it does show some something uncanny. It does. And, um, and in his use of language and dialogue, there's something very distinctive and futuristic about DeLillo. Um, you mentioned Roth. Uh, your admiration for him seems to know a few bounds uh, anyway. Were you surprised when he said he just wasn't going to write anymore? I, I always expect that Philip Roth will always write and Daniel Day-Lewis will always act. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised at any age when they remove themselves from the playing field. Were you? Well, um, you know, what, the rub of time does 
refer to its effect on writers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, th- I thought it was a very dignified way of, of acknowledging that, just to, to stop writing beyond a certain point. I mean, this is, this is a, a completely modern phenomenon given to us, a sort of mixed blessing by medical science. Mm-hmm. I mean, Shakespeare, Dickens, you know, take the canon, certainly the English canon, and they were all dead by the time they were 60, long dead. Shakespeare, 57, Dickens, 58, and then, you know, uh, Jane Austen, 41, uh, Keats, 25. Um, but so we have the the Doddery novelist is, is a 20th century arrival. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's something that you just, it's unavoidable when you read uh, almost anybody. There are exceptions, but um, where you just see them running out of steam before your eyes, mm. they become diluted, diluted and watery. And it's been argued by many that originality and talent are really the same thing. Mm-hmm. And it's very difficult to, to go on being original uh, beyond you know, half a century of, of a writer's life. Uh, so I, I, it's, it, put, it gives writers a new responsibility, which is what to do when they feel that the flame is dying. All right, so we're going to end, as promised, with John Travolta, whom you went and spoke with. There's a great tension in this Travolta piece where he's talking a lot about the, he's been personally excoriated by, I think, Quentin Tarantino for squandering his gifts. You know, he's told, you know what Pauline Kael said about you. You know what Truffaut said about you. And now you're making these movies where babies talk uh, and dogs talk, and you know, and, and, and he is. Um, and and I wonder if that isn't a, a more universal problem. I mean, everybody who has a talent occasionally has to struggle, is pulled by two serpents, one of them pulling in the direction of cash and the other one of pulling them in the direction of their muses. And, and I would think any writer, maybe even including you, uh, has had to fight with those two serpents. Um, well, not, certainly not cash. Um, you must remember that when I started out, um, it was in the 1973, and my advance to the, my first novel was 200 pounds. And um, it wasn't a profession that uh, beckoned you with money. No. And, uh, Samuel Johnson and, famously said, none but a blockhead ever wrote except for money. <laughs> well, uh, um I I disagree. I mean, <laughs> Samuel Johnson said many wonderful things, but that isn't one of them. I don't think um, it was it, it, the the explosion of interest in such as it was uh, in literary fiction came in the early 1980s, and it was I'm convinced it was to do with the expansion of the media. Um, that the papers got fatter and what filled these extra columns was not more news but more features and then they the featurists ran out of you know alcoholic actors and uh, furious fashion models and uh, rapist boxers and all the others 
and found themselves sometimes to their horror um, writing features about serious writers. Um, uh, so I think, you know, people write the obituary on literary fiction every couple of months. Um, but I think it will go on, but it, it may well contract. And the literary culture itself um, will have quite a hard time surviving the internet, I think, is the greatest threat. They said the same of radio, they said it of TV, but the internet attacks the uh, capacity to read a long and more or less demanding book, and the, the, the shrinking attention span is likely to hurt literary fiction. Is it true that you have no email address? No, I've had an email address since... Uh, you know, the beginning of this century or a bit earlier. Um, well, and do you feel, well, actually, I guess we have to stop now. That would be a good conversation for another day. This uh, has been a conversation with Martin Amos. Uh, his collection is The Rub of Time, Bello, Nabokov, Hitchens, Travolta, Trump, Essays and Reportage, 1994 to 2017. Uh, we are going to say farewell here. We've been so lucky to talk to you, Mr. Amos. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Uh, and uh, we are also going to say thank you very much to our wonderful interpreters who, are, who have been uh, carrying this show in American Sign Language to a deaf audience. That can be seen at the Colin McEnroe Show page on Facebook, and we'll just keep it right up there so you can see the whole thing. Uh, thanks for joining us. We're going to be back tomorrow with The Nose, and enjoy the rest of your semi-snowy day. <laughs>